Welcome to Techplomacy Talk. My name is Kasper Klynger. I'm the Danish Tech Ambassador. Today we're actually doing a bit of a repeat because uh, my guest and I, we actually had this conversation a few weeks ago in Copenhagen, but something went wrong with the recording, so we have to do it once again. And um, it's a great pleasure for me to, to introduce uh, a very good friend, but also uh, one of uh, the world's most wired politicians, uh, Marie Jachage, who used to be a member of the European Parliament for, I think, a full 10 years, yes. and now have moved on to do uh, other stuff. Um, Marie, thanks a lot for, for being with us on uh, the pod. It's a pleasure, yeah. Sorry that the technology failed us and uh, happy to talk to you again. So we'll make the best of it, yeah. It was in Copenhagen, so we took full responsibility that's for, right, for that. That's right, that's right. Um, listen, you have, uh, you have a new job or actually a couple of jobs. We'll talk about that a bit later. But going back to, to the thing you did before in, in Europe, uh, let's begin by, by the most difficult question. Uh, you know, where is Europe today in a world uh, filled with new technologies, very digitalized, but also with a lot of technology platforms? Yeah, so I think we should look at this on a couple of levels. Uh, it's it's obvious that Europe is not where it should be when you look at the geopolitical competition and uh, the real consequences that this clashes of systems uh, between, let's say, a top-down governed model in China a very market-driven model here in the United States, and then question of what a values-driven or rule-of-law-based model in Europe should look like. It's clear that, that Europe is not advancing as fast as at least I would like it to go. Um, so that's a problem. But at the same time, when you look on the level of creativity, uh, entrepreneurship, startups, uh, legacy industries that are digitizing, there is a lot going on. So I I don't like this sort of black and white kind of view that Europe is out. It's just a matter of getting our act together and building on on what we have, which will often also mean existing industries like the car industry or healthcare or agriculture, where we can really innovate and add a layer of, let's say, artificial intelligence and, and other technologies uh, to to get a competitive advantage. But just to sort of keep you in, in the gloomy area, area uh, when you look at a map of the world and where the big unicorns, technology unicorns uh, are, yeah. uh, you know, North America, pretty big chunk, uh, Asia, especially China, very big chunk, Europe, uh, not so much. And in fact, if you look at perhaps the most, the biggest of the technology companies we have in Europe, that might be SAPs or company that's been around for a very long time. Yeah. We might have a lot of innovation. We might have fantastic young entrepreneurs, big startups. But we're not really growing the the next generation of big technology companies. Is, mm-hmm. is that something that makes you worried as a as yes. A European? Yes, yeah. I think we should all be worried about our ability to compete uh, in this space because it's not only about the economic interests, which are important. It's about jobs, uh, but it's also about our ability to set standards. And you know, we often hear, "Oh, but Europe is a regulatory superpower." Yeah, okay, there are some examples of that. Let's you know, let's not exaggerate. We've had the General Data Protection Regulation, which did set a new standard, and I think it's a very important first step, but it cannot be the only answer to the question of what is Europe's role going to be. And you also cannot just regulate. You also need to show growth on the basis of new standards and set standards based on the values that you believe in through the technologies. And that's what I think is is often lost in this question of, oh, we are the regulatory superpower and then maybe the others are going to be the markets. We have to strive to be the markets and to use our scale 
uh, for our talented companies and, and entrepreneurs and creative people to actually reach Europeans in all corners of the union. Mm. And this is where a lot of work still has to be done. I mean, I remember 10 years ago, and sometimes it's hard to believe, but really 10 years ago, when I had just entered into the European Parliament, I was working on digital stuff. And at that moment, the proposals for the digital single market were introduced. And at that moment, I felt like there was no time to lose. Ten years ago, I thought this is a very urgent topic. Europe needs to get ahead. This is going to be, you know, the jobs and the, uh, the sort of battles of the future. And then an older colleague said, don't worry, you know, don't get your hopes up. In 10 years, we will still be talking about the digital single market. And I thought, what cynicism? I mean, how can you say this? Come on, it's up to us, you know, let's shape it. Let's make sure that those unnecessary barriers are not there anymore, that there's access to capital and to talent and that we're going to really create a level playing field and uh, allow for the great ideas, I don't know, like we had Skype at the time as a new European I invention, um, to reach customers everywhere and whatnot. And, you know, unfortunately, I have to conclude that we are still talking about the digital single market. Now, that doesn't make it less urgent. It is still very urgent to make sure that we can actually act as one single yeah. European digital space, which I think should go beyond being just a market. It's also very much about sort of civic engagement and a, a democratic sphere that applies online as well. So it's not just a market-driven vision. But um, it is it is sometimes uh, a challenge to be fast enough mm. in a world where bigger seems better, even though uh, we're sitting here in Silicon Valley, the backlash of bigger uh, technology is also very, very clear. So. Uh, let's continue to work on this European model, but do it faster uh, with more resources and with double the ambition. Now, you, you revealed that we're sitting in sunny California, and uh, the last time we had this conversation was in rainy Copenhagen, um, so it's, it's better circumstances. No, it was sunny in, in Copenhagen as well. It was actually well. partly sunny yeah. for once. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's one area where the Dutch and the Danes feel very I know. close to each other. We've seen a lot of clouds in our lives. <laughs> but, but I guess one of the things they're very good at in, in the Bay Area or, or very close to where we're sitting right now is, of course, access to venture capital. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, we meet a lot of Europeans over here that has been basically acquired by some of the bigger companies. Is, is that one of the areas where you Europe is, is failing. We simply do not have enough access to to, to capital, to venture capitalists uh, in, in order to scale the companies we have. Well, yeah, access to, to capital, I do think is important. I'm, I'm not a sort of blind admirer of the venture capital model. I also think it puts small companies in what seem to be very attractive contracts and incentives, mm. you know, to, to make most profit for shareholders very fast. I often think about it as like as young upcoming singer that's very talented and then is so happy to have a contract with a record company mm. but then of course soon they find out that it's a strangling kind of contract and that there's a lot of limitations to what you can do under the contract so i've also talked to a number of entrepreneurs who who feel torn between the need to attract capital to grow very fast and to generate more profit as a result of the venture capital. And on the other hand, you know, to stay true to principles, to stay true to company culture, uh, and to really uh, keep focusing on quality, for example, uh, and not just profit. So uh, access to capital, yes, but venture capital alone, I don't know. Hmm. If I look at the work that we're doing here through uh, this Tecplomis initiative, basically bringing technology into foreign policy and the conversation we're having with the big companies, especially in the Bay Area, mm -hmm. one of the things that we hear very often is, of course, that 
what Europe is doing on the regulatory front is sort of anti-American or at least anti-Silicon Valley in mm -hmm. its nature. You mentioned that the General Data Protection Regulation, of course, that's perhaps the most famous piece of, of legislation coming out of Europe on, on the digital area for a very long time. Yeah. But but having having been in Brussels for a long time, I mean, is it is it partly true? Is there a degree of anti-Americanism in how we regulate in Europe? Oh, not at all. Not at all. I think Europeans come from a different tradition of looking at legislation and, and regulation. Um, one very telling example is obviously the fact that privacy is a fundamental right mm. in Europe and in, in the United States it's more of a consumer right. And Europeans see people as citizens first and foremost, not as consumers. And I think that is a fundamental difference. Uh, obviously the role of government is different in Europe. We have stronger government and You know, when I look at the infrastructure here in the United States or when I look at the availability of services and at what price, anything from education to healthcare, I think we have the better model. Uh, but it does mean that through taxation you have a redistribution of revenues and you also trust government to take care of some of those basic uh, services and, and um, uh, yeah, uh, programs that are available for all citizens. Now. Here, there is a tradition of being more skeptical about government and giving more space to the market, um, more survival of the fittest kind of kind of model. Um, and I think those are, are fundamentally different views on what is an appropriate intervention. But having said that, I see a big, big turning point happening in the United States right now. And it's actually a huge opportunity for those of us like myself who believe that there are so many things we share across the Atlantic as well in terms of being democracies, in terms of having the rule of law, in terms of believing for the most part, and uh, it's not all very hopeful, the politics in this country uh, uh, these days to say the least, but you know, in principle, believing in human rights that are universal and should apply to people globally, whether it's online or offline, et cetera, et cetera. And in fact, I think that we're losing a lot of precious time in the rift that we now see between Americans and Europeans. And instead, that we should be in the driver's seat to develop a democratic model of governance of technology and data. Mm -hmm. That ultimately, I believe, will be so decisive for the quality of life of our people. And I think the answer of what is a democratic model of governing technology can never be bigger tech companies alone. And I think that the, the wake up call in this country has come. It has come around the presidential elections of 2016, whether it was hacking and how it could be possible that there were such vulnerabilities in the democratic uh, infrastructure or the whole question of Cambridge Analytica, the role of Facebook and other tech companies in basically governing our information infrastructure and, and the information flows that everybody, especially younger people, rely on 100% for access to information. And it's not a secret that information has always been power and the way in which you govern an information ecosystem is inevitably going to be political and can either be used for control Mm -hmm. or for enabling pluralist voices and a democratic uh, open debate. So I hope that the difficult moment we find ourselves in, wake up call about the backlash of technology, the fact that it did not automatically bring democracy, can also be a moment where Americans and Europeans can look at the very principles that we do not want to see disrupted and ways in which we can advance a democratic model together. And that should also include countries like India, mm. Japan, Latin American countries, you know, South Africa. There are so many opportunities in looking also beyond our own spheres and really uh, strengthening the democratic 
story here. That's at least something that I believe has been overlooked in the tech utopism that we saw a lot in, in Silicon Valley. And I think that's a super important point. Another area where, where the Dutch and the Danes might be uh, close to each other, the question of the transatlantic relationship. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's fair to say that because of the tech lash in, in Europe, not only in Europe, but also in Europe, and because of, of a degree of sort of Euro lash, not least in Silicon Valley, a concern of what is happening on, on the regulatory front, we haven't seen the transatlantic aspect being part of the conversation, at least not with the technology companies. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, uh, you know, with, with renewed discussions also in Washington, D.C., about, you know, do we need to regulate tech harder, antitrust discussions, is that external pressure, do you think, is that going to be helpful in convincing some of the executives here in the Valley or elsewhere that they also need to factor in societal responsibility or the transatlantic aspect in how they do business and how they roll out their platforms? Well, you know, you would hope that the tech executives who have extraordinary power, uh, they they reach billions of consumers every day globally. Mm-hmm. Some of them have a customer base much bigger than the biggest countries uh, and, and have a lot of wealth bigger than some countries. So with power comes responsibility. I fundamentally believe that and I really hope that CEOs and other responsibles in the business are not going to wait until sort of the the, the sword of um, regulation is over their heads and only under pressure are going to act in the public interest, you know. Mm. So I really expect also from tech executives to take a position. But I do think that the politicization of the debate on technology and the stakes that are actually increasing every day mm. will make it much more important which values decisions mm. these executives are going to make and also how they're going to articulate that. They cannot pretend that technology is neutral. They cannot pretend that they are agnostic to governance uh, of, of the technology itself, but also of the countries in which they operate. Um, I think that that the question will really be brought to them. Also, when you hear President Trump saying, you know, that there's that he believes that the social media companies are are leaning too too much to the left. Others believe that the social media companies have given a huge platform for, you know, nationalist and and uh, far right voices. At some point, they will probably feel damned if they do, damned if they don't, with, with whichever decision they will, the, the, I mean, the tech executives now mm. will feel the pressure uh, of one political angle or the other. Uh, there's going to be huge magnifying glass over everything they do in the run-up to the next uh, presidential elections in, in 2020. So it is in their self-interest to take a position, and I would strongly hope and encourage them to take a position on the side of democracy, on the side of the rule of law, on the side of universal human rights. And, uh, you know, whatever comes out of Washington, I don't know if it will contribute to that, but I think it is really upon the tech executives themselves. And I hope that with uh, a young ideological generation, for them to attract talent, these values will be important. For them to reach customers, these values will be important. And just for them as corporate citizens, these values are important. I'll not ask the question of what constitutes a young generation, because I think that would be unpleasant for me to hear your answer to that question. (laughs) Maybe also for me, but that's okay. (laughs) I doubt that. uh... (laughs) One thing, Marie, you said before is is how do we sort of get a democratic governance around technology? And, And certainly one of the conclusions we've come to is that in the best tradition of small uh, countries, uh, certainly Denmark, perhaps also even uh, the Netherlands, you need to build alliances. And in, mm-hmm. in a digital 
uh, world, uh, those alliances, in our view today, also have to include the private sector. Governments or international institu- institutions cannot do it alone. We need the private sector on board. Mm-hmm. It takes two to tango, and therefore we do need to see the executives uh, also in, in the valley elsewhere to step up the plate, up to the plate, and actually want this kind of coalition building. Yeah. Do, do you do you see that it's it's not a monolithic uh, view across uh, all the tech companies? But can you give a couple of examples of where you've seen some some positive pros- uh, progress? Well, first of all, I agree that it's hard for governments to do this alone. And this also really puts the spotlight on the tech companies in terms of where they want to position themselves. Uh, They have a huge responsibility to build and defend critical infrastructure. Uh, Are they going to step up to the plate? I think the invitation is there, especially from democratic governments, from European governments. Certainly, this multi-stakeholder model is very much defended and promoted. But it has to be more than just a slogan. It has to be more than just a talking point that there is a multi-stakeholder model. Because what does it mean? Uh, how are articulated principles going to be enforced? Where's the accountability when these principles are violated? So I think there is a role for the private sector, and it should be more than picking and choosing as well. I mean, we've seen very convenient kind of arguing for regulation. You know, Apple wants more privacy regulation. Facebook wants regulation on content moderation. Uh, I don't know if Google has now come up uh, with an articulation of um, uh, demand for regulation, but probably they will soon. And so you see these companies really positioning themselves vis-a-vis regulation exactly in the very comfortable spot that will not harm their business model and that may actually hurt their competitors. That, in my opinion, is not enough. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's it's a beginning of articulation that there is a role for the private sector. There are some initiatives that are more cross-cutting, like uh, the tech accord, you know, on, on uh, security um standards that has been agreed between different companies, et cetera, et cetera. But there will always be a self-selecting element in this, and we have to be mindful of that. So um, I think it's we see initial steps, some of them good, some of them a little bit opportunistic, mm. but it cannot be the only, um, the only step. And we have to look more comprehensively at what principles are articulated, what responsibilities are actually taken, and who is not stepping forward. Mm-hmm. You know, so often you you hear the voices of a self-selected group of companies that see the benefit, but then in the, in the shadows of the debates, there are those who do not show up at conferences, who are not transparent about the choices they make, and who are just not even interested in engaging, and who probably will say things like move fast and break things, or... Uh, we will only change our behavior when the law is changed or actually deliberately break the law like Mm. companies like Uber have done in the past with software that was different for regulators than for ordinary customers, etc. So um, I think we're seeing the beginning, Mm. but we should not be satisfied too quickly. And normally we regulate when there is market failure. So if we can't get people around the table to take responsibility, then we actually step in with legislation or regulation. Um, I guess the regulatory approach is one way to get the companies to play along. Uh, The other way is to increase accountability. And I think governments have a role to play here. Civil society has a role to play. But we've also seen employees increasingly holding, uh, you know, the executives accountable to the value sets uh, within uh, the companies themselves. Mm -hmm. Which, which one would you where would you put your ex on the regulatory front or sort of the self-regulation because of external pressure well i'm a big believer in the rule of law i think yeah. it really underpins everything in terms of our fundamental rights our freedoms the quality of life of our people and there's no reason why companies cannot adopt rule of law principles like equal treatment like transparency of you know the the terms of terms of use for example so basically transparency of the of the laws applied. I mean, it's an illusion to think that companies don't regulate. 
they regulate through their technology and through their business models. Uh, another element of the rule of law is the right to appeal. Hmm. Um, so there's a number of things that I think companies can do to act in line with rule of law principles, not just to quote unquote wait for regulation. Uh, and as they step up self-initiated um, efforts, I think that's fine. But if you ask me, where do I come out? At the side of the rule of law. If we zoom out, we've been talking about the American companies, a little bit about Europe. But if we look at it from a global point of view, uh, I think you before said that there is a basic choice to be made between you know, tech for, for control or surveillance or, or tech for a more democratic approach. Mm-hmm. Are you are you sort of currently, uh, of course, concerned about what happens with some of the big uh, U.S. Uh, social media platforms? But long term, what happens in China, Southeast Asia? I mean, is that where we also need to put a lot of our efforts? Oh, absolutely. I think there's a lack of appreciation in Europe generally for what is happening in China um, and generally in Asia. Uh, we look a lot when I turn on the radio in the morning, I can hear everything about what President Trump has tweeted now and, you know, the the trade wars and how more tariffs have been uh, adopted. And obviously that very much impacts Europe. But I wish we could also hear about what's happening in India. Mm. A lot of crucial developments there now, a lot of them very worrying. And the question of where democracy goes, I believe, is integrally tied to where India goes. Mm. And from that point of view, I miss a focus on Asia, and I certainly miss a focus on human rights violations in China that are increasingly enabled by technology. Mm. I think a lot of European companies have gold rush. Uh, They see a lot of opportunities to make money in China, and I understand that that's exciting. I'm a liberal. I don't mind uh, doing business. In fact, I think it's very exciting, and competition is good for innovation. But there are a lot of problems in fair treatment of European companies, uh, and there are also problems with the concessions that are directly or indirectly done to a government that is uh, very harshly repressing significant parts of its its population. And the facial recognition technologies are an element of that. Now the massive vacuuming up of data uh, towards AI is, is a new development where we really have to ask ourselves if it is done in the mirror image of the Communist Party and the sort of top-down controlled model, what does it mean? for democracy in the longer term? What does it mean for geopolitical relations? What does it mean for questions of cybersecurity and and the future of of conflict, hybrid conflict, for example? There are so many implications of where power lies and whether there's checks on that power and whether there's regard for people's universal human rights. And frankly speaking, uh, that is a big question in, in China that we have to address more Uh, ambitiously, perhaps as ambitiously as we see the companies running to China to do business. And I know you've tweeted about this, but of course, turning on the the morning news, one thing that is coming out of Asia is, of course, some of the demonstrations we're seeing in Hong Kong. Yes. Where we also see demonstrators taking down poles with cameras because of fear of facial recognition systems. I mm-hmm. mean, is that the new digital reality as well, that there is an element where technology is, is used also, in fact, to, to have repercussions after uh, specific activities? Do, do you think that will be seen elsewhere and then, then in Hong Kong and in Asia as well? You know, it, it was like that uh, for for a long time already. I mm. remember, and I especially recall when I look at the, the courageous young people in the streets of Hong Kong right now, I remember the courageous young people in Iran, mm. courageous young people in Tunisia, in Egypt, in Syria, that peacefully took to the streets to ask for a more just society, to ask for more uh, opportunities for them, less corruption, for more fairness, and uh, for respect for their human rights. Yeah. And these are values that I 
you know, I feel in my heart. It's not something I just believe in or I, I think is a political agenda, but this is this is hugely important. And uh, I think Europe should have done more to embrace uh, the people calling for those values, but that's a different story. What was the assessment at the time was that those young people in the Arab world were empowered with mobile phones in their hands and access to the internet. Of course, they were empowered. You know, they could self-organize, they could document, share human rights abuses, they could organize on social media, uh, they could also articulate themselves online, even if they could not in the newspaper or elsewhere. Mm. But, and this has really been part of the story from the get-go, these governments, these authoritarian governments were also empowered by technology. In fact, they were using hacking, tracking, tracing, exfiltration kind of technologies available on the free market, often made in Western countries, to actually repress their people. And so this notion that you know only the individual is empowered has been flawed from the very beginning. This notion that technology would make democracy go viral was a completely um, irrational assumption and even promise from some of these uh, companies, you know, an argument they used against uh, regulatory intervention. But when you look in Hong Kong now, you see a generation that has learned. You see a generation that has grown up with mobile phones and is very much aware that cameras are everywhere, that facial recognition is everywhere. They're, they're you know, in very symbolic ways, taking down lamp posts that may have cameras in them. They're using laser beams uh, to avoid being uh, photographed. Now, you know, I'm afraid there are many more ways in which they're being detected. And the question of does anonymity still exist? Is there even a chance of having the right to privacy uh, under such circumstances, which has implications for freedom of association, freedom of expression? You know, all these fundamental rights are related to each other. And I think when we think about China, uh, we have to appreciate that there is very, very much uh, interlinking between trade interests, technology interests and human rights and security interests. It, it all comes together in these technologies. And uh, I, I wish we had more of an integrated vision in Europe on what is at stake there. And I think if anyone knows, it's the young people in the streets of Hong Kong. One other area related to China that we saw lately was, of course, the question of Huawei and the yes. 5G technology. Yeah. Huge issue here in the U.S., but also a big hot potato in, in Europe, uh, basically driven out of concerns of uh, Trojan horses being implemented in our critical um, telecommunications infrastructure. Um, I think there are two things that this shows that, you know, technology is very much foreign policy. It was a very specific uh, aspect of the U.S. foreign policy, but also that that we are very vulnerable to, to these new uh, technologies. And I know this is part of your, your new job. So mm -hmm. perhaps you can expand a bit on, on your, how, how you see the cybersecurity aspect of it, both the, the potential risks, but also our ability to actually do something about it. Yeah, so I think those are two very important questions, but I'm going to try to separate them out a little bit anyway. So the, the question of, of can we trust Huawei or any other vendor for that matter, mm -hmm. I, I would much prefer a more uh, general approach to what is needed to assess whether technologies, either through the supply chain, through the networks, through the devices, through the services, whether technology can be trusted um, and whether there are no, not so much only backdoors, but also sort of powers uh, on the part of uh, intelligence companies and others to just uh, gain access to the data um, and to, to use it for any kind of inspection, right? Uh, corporate espionage or uh, human rights violations or uh, hybrid warfare or whatnot. There are so many, so many concerns once 
you know, this kind of vulnerability has been um, has been identified. So I would like to see one European approach to understanding what are the criteria we need for uh, critical infrastructure, handling of data, uh, network technologies, uh, 5G, what have you. And for that to happen, Europe has to overcome the fragmentation it still has on the part of national security. Mm. Because there is a real clash between being one single market, also digitally, and having 28 different approaches to what national security looks like and a, a lack of trust. In that context, we are not getting ahead soon enough. Then switching to the other uh, part of the question that you asked, the broader question of cybersecurity, but also um, questions of escalation of conflict mm. involving uh, the digital realm, yeah. where if states are are fighting or non-state actors are deploying cyber attacks, whether it's through ransomware or just um, you know de um, destabilizing. Uh, networks or uh, electrical grids or whatever, they are using technologies um, that are often in the hands of private companies. So we also see a very changing landscape here of what conflict looks like. It's often invisible and the damage is often seen in an abstract way while this is very much about people. You know, these, these confrontations are not about quote unquote cyber, but they're also about people and about real stakes, uh, power, power battles, etc. And um, what I'm hoping is that we can have more focus on closing the accountability gap, looking at uh, what can be done to have greater resilience, what can be done to see more responsible behavior, both on the part of states and uh, on the part of companies, and have a clearer articulation of norms, uh, clearer implementation of international law in this space, so that we do not see a completely different approach to what conflict um, might look like offline and online, even though the damage can be can be similar. Yeah, and I'm actually literally just back from the UN General Assembly in New York, uh, yeah. sort of the Woodstock of uh, heads of states and governments and a few poor bureaucrats. Well, as well. I, I wish it was that far. <laughs> <laughs> but but of course, one of the big discussion topics was cybersecurity, and we're in the middle of a difficult process with two competing working groups in, in the UN looking at the norms or yeah. the guardrails for for uh, state behavior, uh, responsible state behavior in in cyberspace. Yeah. But another big topic is, of course, does attribution work? So basically assigning responsibility for a specific attack. Mm-hmm. Um, and that you can do for individual persons, but you can also do it at, at the state level. Just out of curiosity, I mean, do, do you believe attribution has an effect on, on the aggressors or the perpetrators of, of cyber attacks? Well, what we see is too little attribution. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are claims that attribution is impossible. I don't believe that. I think it's often very much a political choice yeah. and a question of whether the attribution in turn reveals, for example, intelligence capabilities that a, a state might have. Um, but of course, if there is no consequence to behavior, if there is no accountability, then we have a problem. So ensuring that there is accountability, which will involve attribution should help uh, to to see more justice, to see more um, more sort of um, consequences. So it could be in the form of sanctions, could be in the form of, of other reprisals. Yeah. But the notion that any attacker can get away with uh, whatever is done, whether it's an individual or a non-state actor or a state, uh, I think is problematic. Mm. So the, here too, the accountability gap has to be closed. And if you look at some of the the big uh, parties involved, I mean, I think traditionally you point at sort of Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, some of the most active ones on on cybersecurity issues. Um, 
Or undermining it, rather. Yeah. I think that's probably a better way <laughs> yeah. to put it. Thanks very much. Perhaps we should turn... Uh, to oh, I would be happy to interview you, but we'll do that we'll do another that next time. time. Yeah. yeah. Uh, no, but I, I guess the, the question here is, does attribution actually have an effect on, on different regimes that are using these tactics? And, and I was just wondering, uh, to some extent, you could say that Russia and China are very different entities in this area. And, and you could actually argue, as people have, that perhaps attribution has a bigger effect on, on a country like China that is perhaps generally interested in being seen as a responsible international actor. I mean, do, do you see it in similar ways or how would you uh, how would you assess that? You know, I think it's we're in very early stages of even having a systematic approach uh, in terms of how we deal with attacks and the consequences. In Europe, only recently, we've adopted a mechanism that says there can be sanctions as a result of cyber attack. Mm. So it basically puts it in, in the same category of harm yeah. uh, as a number of other confrontations we might have. And of course, it matters to some extent how much a country cares about its reputation. We see more um, cyber uh, undermining activities coming from Iran when there is a challenge, for example, about uh, the nuclear deal or when there is a confrontation going on, there is an immediate uh, intensification of, of activities. Um, we see, unfortunately, a permanent uh, set of activities coming from the Kremlin and uh, Russian intelligence services to try to undermine our liberal democracy, whether yeah. it's through the technology itself or disinformation and more hybrid uh, approaches. The same goes for China. Again, here, I think we're focusing a lot on Russia. That's important, but Russia is not the only actor in this space. Mm -hmm. So it's important that we, again, uh, are not naive, that we look at what is actually going on and that there are consequences to behavior. And I don't don't mind as much whether it comes from the north or the south, from the east or the west, or whether it comes from a state or a non-state actor. Mm -hmm. What I care about is that we understand better what is going on, what is at stake, that people do more to create resilience, but that there are also consequences. And in, in my opinion, there should be the full toolbox of foreign policy instruments available to uh, answer, so to mm. say, to cyber attacks or mm. hybrid conflict, yeah. Mm. So we haven't seen the last of, of cyber attacks. In fact, we might have only seen the top, the tip of the iceberg in, in this area. And, and I guess what you're saying is that we need to begin looking at this in, in almost a traditional sense of a violent aggression or stepping over a, a border or a sovereign space. Is, is that sort of the necessary mindset you see both among politicians, among uh, individual companies that, you know, we're, we're in a different kind of uh, state today than we were even just a few years ago? Uh, I would say we are in a different state, mm -hmm. but we are also not in a different state mm -hmm. because principles of sovereignty, principles of non-aggression, principles of, of respect for human rights, even uh, laws of armed conflict, they are not new uh, yeah. and they should apply online as they do offline. They should apply in the digital space as they do in the kinetic uh, space. The question is just, is there enough clarity also with the private sector, which has not been subject to law in the same way that states have been when they sign up to treaties, etc.? Mm -hmm. uh, should we clarify more of what the responsible behavior looks like? And that can be done through laws, which we talked about, regulation, international agreements, the challenges that we see there at the United Nations level. Or should we also look at norms, a slightly softer version of agreed benchmarks and, mm -hmm. and um, guardrails, as you called it before, yeah. which I think is a, is a good way to think about it, that can invite more responsible uh, behavior and that can gradually see more support 
Um, we are in the process with the Global Commission on the Stability of um, Cyberspace, which which I'm a member of, to finalize our our work of two years, where uh, a very important element has been to think about what these norms should be. Yeah. And there are norms about non-attacking uh, the public core of the internet, basically the routers and the infrastructure that underpin everything that we appreciate about using the internet every day for work or going on a date or accessing the news or uh, looking at the weather forecast. Um, all those all those opportunities are really uh, enabled by an infrastructure that's invisible, but that's hugely important. Yeah. Uh, we have a proposed norm on the uh, election infrastructure and democratic infrastructure uh, on supply chains, on botnets, on um, software vulnerabilities. So there's a set of norms that hopefully many actors will seek to adopt yeah. and then can begin to raise the bar of having guardrails at all and have them articulated and put it before actors. Are you going to come on board yeah. or not? Yeah. I mean, it really also has to be a litmus test mm. for everybody. Are they going to take responsibility or or not? And I think that moment has, has truly arrived with huge urgency. Uh, Marietje, just before finishing off the, the pod, uh, we have a new European Commission coming into office, and I'm not objective, I know that, because our commission is going to be uh, responsible for, I think, everything digital as the executive vice president of the new commission. Um, if you had to write sort of a, a to-do list to the new commission on, on digital affairs or tech, tech affairs, mm-hmm. name a few things that you think is critically important for the new commission to look at. Yeah, so let me le- echo as a European, right? And uh, not ju- I'm not a Dane, but uh, she, Margrethe Vestager, who we were talking Dane about. <laughs> Am I? Well, I'd be happy to. But I, yeah, yeah <laughs> I, I, you know, as a European, and I've seen Margrethe Vestager in action for the past five years, dealing with antitrust, dealing with competition in in very difficult circumstances. I mean, antitrust with, you know such high fines and and big stakes for the companies it's not an easy task and she's done a tremendous job not only by keeping her head cool but she has also really had a way to let her heart speak and reaching out to europeans Uh, and and i think it's remarkable to see how much of a fan base she has across political boundaries i mean obviously she's a liberal like me so i'm also not objective but i've i've been amazed at what what kind of reputation she has and the strength of that and how it appeals. The fan base is a little bit smaller in this area where we're sitting right now, but anyway. Yeah, I know, (laughs) I know, but that's okay. Um, I'm not surprised. Um, But uh, fairness fairness in in the economy is something that I believe even uh, the most classical liberals should should appreciate and there there are rules uh, in any fair system uh, that have to be respected. And I think competition and antitrust rules are at the core of that. Uh, we're not even talking about social rights or environmental protection or yeah. human rights. It's really the core of a, a fair economy, uh, which should also be kept online. Uh, and she's done a tremendous job. So it's really great to see that besides keeping this competition authority, which is sort of the big hammer with which she can uh, enforce this fairness, she is now also made responsible for digital in the broader sense, connecting the portfolios of different members of the European Commission. And... Um, now coming to your question, what do I think are the main priorities? I believe that this sort of 
intersection of geopolitics and technology needs to be much more prominently addressed by Europe. We have a tendency in, in Europe to nicely cut up something like digital single market. You know, we have a copyright directive, we have e-identity, we have um, uh, e-evidence, we have all kinds of elements that together should make up the digital single market, but we forget to look at the geopolitical stakes, uh, digital trade being one of them, Obviously, security, which we talked about quite a bit today, but also our ability to compete, this this importance of, of fostering innovation, having uh, our own market through which we show that on the basis of the va values that we believe in, uh, we can see see growth and uh, successes of, of our companies that mm. can stay in Europe and, and reach people that way. Um, but I also think there's, there's a huge opportunity to reach out more to the countries we spoke about, India, uh, African uh, continent is extremely important. Lots of young people, lots of development that we can help foster through technology, but not without pairing it with laws that protect the people uh, yeah. that are living there. So I would like Europe to be the anchor of what a democratic model of governance in the tech space can look like. And, and we cannot get there when we just look inward. Yeah. And so looking outward, being super ambitious, uh, and not being naive, I think it's not only about opportunities, it's also really about protecting against very serious threats and harms. Uh, this is what Europe needs to do, and that's, that's a lot. It's a lot. Do you think one of our most important export commodities of Europe will still be regulation of technology that will have an impact globally? I mean, we're sitting in California, and you know they're introducing uh, basically a, a general data data. General data protection regulation, Jesus, I've said that so many times, <laughs> um, which is very similar to Europe. In fact, in some areas, it might be, be tougher. Do you, think, do you still see Europe as being sort of a, a trendsetter in, in, in the regulations or, or setting the guardrails for, for Well, technology? you know what's funny? When you talk to people in the tech sector um, about regulation, mm -hmm. you often get the question, why would you regulate the Internet? Yeah. And it's seen as a very negative uh, move, especially here in Silicon Valley. I never think about it as regulating the internet. I think about it as regulating for uh, equal treatment, like non-discrimination of people on the yeah. basis of sexual orientation, skin color, gender, age. Um, and, and this should also apply online. Yeah. Uh, I think about freedom of expression, which is so vital and which is really under a lot of pressure with companies filtering out content for a variety of reasons, without any accountability or transparency of the algorithms that are doing that for profit, not mm. for free expression. Mm. These are not optimized for freedom of expression. They're yeah. optimized for ad sales. And so having accountability and oversight over these algorithms is not about regulating the internet. It's about ensuring that free speech can exist. Mm -hmm. And altogether, these principles make up the rule of law. So I think we should focus on the rule of law indeed not so much to bother anyone, not so much to um, uh, articulate any kind of envy, but really to safeguard the very principles that have, have guaranteed a quality of life for people also in the United States, and that are the vital ingredients of a democratic system. And I'm in favor of lots of disruption. I think that there is a lot of improvements that can be made through innovation. We should constantly challenge the status quo but we should also be very clear about what we do not want to see disrupted. And if we're not careful, it gets it gets disrupted even though we, we hope something else is happening. I mean, a lot of the technologies came with the promise of democratizing. Well, that didn't happen. Now we see a lot of hype and also fear around artificial intelligence, you know, that it's mm. inevitably going to be a great solution or that it's inevitably going to be uh, a disaster. 
I don't want to be deterministic, but I want to be deliberate and, and start with principles and see how they can be uh, protected. And sometimes that will need new regulations. Sometimes it won't. Sometimes it will just mean to have, for example, empowerment of yeah. of enforcement uh, and better better sense of understanding. For example, an algorithm, if, if somebody would drop one on the table right now, you and I could probably not understand what it is. Uh, yeah. And very few people can. So how can we have oversight and, and accountability? And you know, when I when I talk to tech executives, they often say, oh, politicians know so little about technology. Uh, this may well be true, but then give us access to it. I yes. mean, if we don't know what's going on in the machine room of your company, then please don't excuse, uh, accuse us uh, lawmakers uh, of, of not doing the right thing. Transparency is vital for accountability and, and lawmaking. And I think that's a fantastic way of, of coming towards the end of the part. And, and I think exactly transparency is something we do need to see more of also from the sector, also in order for us to do smart regulation in a way that is not going to stifle innovation, that is not going to make it impossible to grow fantastically innovative, very technology-driven companies. So so I completely agree with you on that. Now, I, I pre-warned you that my last question is always the same. So basically, what is the question I should have asked you and what is the answer to that question? Well, of course, because I'm about to start my new role as um, International Director of Policy here at Stanford at the Cyber Policy Center and my role as a fellow, uh, International Policy Fellow at the Institute for Human-Centered AI. I don't even know how I can ever explain this to people because it's so much language for we don't the have roles that I'm going to have. <laughs> but uh, I'm very excited about starting here. So I, of course, hope that you would have asked me, what do you want to achieve here? And um, we can talk about that another time or... <laughs> Uh, I hope we will stay in touch while we're both here as Europeans in Silicon Valley to uh, compare notes once in a while, even though we come at the question of, of governance and technology from different angles. I just spent 10 years in, in politics, and I'm really happy to now sort of shift perspectives, yeah. come to the heart of where the technology is developed, uh, where the next generation of ambitious CEOs is, is ready to build uh, the next innovation, but to also uh, share with students here and, and do more research on the impact of technology on the rule of law. And I know you as a diplomat are you know, focused on, on similar things. I mean, you're, you're a representative of a very democratic a government that understands what is at stake uh, in the field of technology. So I think it will be very interesting to see whether the tipping point that I believe is here yeah. on um, seeing Europeans as the bad guys that only want to overregulate, uh, I think the tipping point is, is behind us and hopefully it will lead to a more constructive environment for discussions across the Atlantic, but really among democratic forces. Uh, and people who believe in the preservation of democracy. So let's Fantastic. continue. And you certainly have an ally. And, and as you said, this is not the last conversation the two of us are going to be having on, on these issues. And I do think having a, a European voice, another European voice here in, in the Valley is going to be critically important to educate not only the next generation of students, but in fact also some of the executives or upcoming uh, managers in, in the big tech companies. Thanks a lot for being on the part, Marija. Thank you. This was another episode of Techplomacy Talk, researched and developed by the Office of Denmark's Tech Ambassador in Silicon Valley, Copenhagen, and Beijing. My name is Søren Peter Knudsen, and I'm the one doing the editing to bring you this month's episode. If you like what you just heard, please share it with someone you know, and don't forget to subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. Finally, if you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for future guests, please reach out on Twitter 
using the handle DK Tech AMB.